Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue worshiping now. We're going to worship through the study of God's Word. So grab your Bibles if you have them. We'll be in John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7. Um, we're going to continue our series called That You May Believe as we journey through the book of John. We're doing it chapter by chapter, uh, which means that we've asked all of us to participate in this. That um, you, Hopefully many of you have read John chapter 7 this past week as you're le- leaning into this teaching this morning. I'm just going to cover the first 24 verses. We'll cover the end of it a little bit next week into chapter eight, but this is um, where we're gonna go this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanna share a few things for us just in the life of our church, ways that um, the Lord is leading us and guiding us. Uh, A number of weeks ago, we presented Jay Nelson as an elder candidate, nominated him as an elder uh, to you through our our newsletter, and then we're gonna announce it here today. Um, Just a nomination. So for us, we are an elder-led church. There is a group of men that have been elected, that have been chosen by the church to lead our church. We don't have a senior pastor. Our senior pastor is Jesus. Then under him sits a group of elders who lead, uh, guide this church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we bring new elders on, it's a prayerful thing for months for our elders, and then we nominate and present them to you and ask them that you would affirm that nomination. So Jay Nelson, who runs a lot of our AV, our sound and audio, um, just a servant of servants, a, God, a guy who loves the Lord and loves his wife and his family, we are presenting him to you um, by next Monday, I think, the 16th, um, or Tuesday, the 15th, next Monday, we would ask that if you have any concerns, anything for us that we should know about Jay that um, may not, um, that may hinder that process, please let us know. But we are excited as, as a group of elders to present him to you. We are thrilled uh, that he would be someone that God has called to help lead this church. So we want to lay that before you in the way of your prayer and praying for him and his family in the midst of this nomination come the attacks of the enemy. As God is raising people up, the enemy takes notice to be in prayer uh, for them. And then a few events coming up for us next Sunday, the 14th. You can begin picking up egg boxes to egg your neighbor. It's the second greatest commandment, to egg your neighbor as yourself. And so we'd ask that you would uh, invite you to egg your neighbor. We're not doing our big Easter egg hunt on our campus this year. Uh, one great thing about uh, the past year is that we've been able to rethink how we want to structure and what we need to do. And one creative thing that Allison has come up with is that we would take this ministry of the Easter egg hunt out into our community. So we're gonna ask over the next few weeks, you would pick up a box of a dozen eggs, pick up three or four boxes, uh, fill them with candy. There's directions inside the box. And then you will hide those in your neighbor's yard, a friend's yard, probably not a stranger's yard, but someone that you know uh, that won't be alarmed to see you walking around their yard. You would uh, hide those. It presents the gospel, tells the story of the resurrection of Jesus. There's a way for them to learn more about that. So we wanna invite you to be part of that. It doesn't have to be kids. It can be anyone anyone. People, uh, people love finding random things in their yard. That, that's what I've learned in my life, unless dogs leave it, and then I don't like finding that in my yard. But we can find eggs, and so I want to invite you to, part, to do that. We'll have those available to you uh, next week. Also coming up March 28th, we have another prayer and worship service. Uh, these, I feel like they just keep getting better. The more that we have, they just keep getting better. So I want to invite you um, to that elementary age uh, kids, middle school students, high school students, college students, adults, we're all invited to this March 28th, 5 to 6 p.m. here in the gym. We're just going to pray and seek the Lord in this season. It will be Palm Sunday, so it'll be a 
different kind of flair for that as we step into Passion Week. Looking forward to that, so I'll have you mark your calendars for that. There will be childcare for our preschoolers, though, if you, if you have some of them. And then finally, Easter Sunday is coming. It's uh, four weeks from today. April 4th is Easter. We're gonna stick with our same gathering times, 9.45 and 11.15. Um, we're gonna try to just uh, serve the Lord the best way we can. So invite your friends, invite people to hear the gospel of Jesus and be willing to walk with them afterwards. You can't just drop them off and expect us to fix them. You get to walk with them um, a- after that. But we're gonna celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as a family on that Sunday, 9.45 and 11.15 here, uh, here in the gym. Looking forward to that. Are we good? All right, John chapter seven is where we'll be this morning. Uh, we're coming out of John chapter six. John chapter six, Jesus feeds the 5,000, probably more like 12 to 18,000 once you count uh, women and children. So a large crowd that he has fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. He walks on water. He teleports the boat from the middle of the lake to the other side of the lake. And then he gives this uh, dissertation on what it means to follow him. In John chapter six, where he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you wanna follow me. The point Jesus was making is that I need to be what sustains you. Uh, What you had trusted to sustain you before no longer sustains. I I need to sustain you. Do you trust me in that? Multitudes were there and many of them turned and no longer followed Jesus after that sermon. In fact, the disciples said, this was a hard teaching. Who can understand it? Who can actually follow this? This seems like a lot. And many of his followers turned and left him. And Jesus turns to his 12 apostles and says, what about you? Will you also leave? And then Peter, speaking for the 12, says, where else would we go? You have the key, the words to eternal life. Where else would we go? We want life and you have the words to life. We're gonna stay with you. And then Jesus reminds them, hey, I've chosen the 12 of you, but there's one of you who is a deceiver, one who will betray me. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. And so what John has done is John has taken uh, the multitudes down to the followers of Jesus, down to now his 12 disciples. He's going to get a bit more narrow here in John chapter 7. Now, I don't know what, uh, what your marriages are like. Um, I, love, I love being married to my wife. It's, she is the best gift the Lord has given me outside of Jesus Christ. I am, I'm in love with her still to this day and will be forever. And so I, I love her, I love that, and I love marriage. Um, but what's happened in, in our marriage, maybe it's similar to you, is that sometimes we don't agree on things that ever happen in your marriage, just mine. Interesting. Um, maybe you don't, you don't agree all the time because you have different perspectives and different personalities and ways that you would live your life and parent your children and order food and restaurants you would go to. And sometimes she says what she wants and sometimes she says, I don't care. And then later I find out she does care. And so some of that has happened for us. But because I've married a woman who is so godly and has just a spiritual gift of discernment, um, she is right more times than she is wrong. And I want to say that publicly to you, that she's right a lot of the time. And so every once in a while, I get to be right, and not because she lets me be right, but because sometimes by the sovereign grace of the Lord, I actually am right. And so every once in a while, it's rarefied air when that happens, but uh, when, I'm, when I'm right, I enjoy being right. Anybody else enjoy being right? What a great, isn't it a good feeling? Especially when you're usually wrong. Just that one glimmer of, I'm, I'm right today. That's, it. That's such a good feeling for me. And sometimes I like to let Meredith know that I feel good about it. Uh, anybody else do that? Um, I'm just, I'm super joyful when that happens. And there's sometimes it's just a look that I can give. And every once in a while, there'll be something that comes up. And um, once a year, well, I get to be right. And, um, and she'll say something like, it's okay. I, I know that you know that you are right. And then the godly husband that I am, I say, listen, it's not about who's right. It's just not. 
but you're right. I was right. But if I'm honest, I can find myself um, in my marriage and other relationships that desire to be right often trumps my desire to do what God wants me to do. My desire to be right often trumps my desire to love well. Anybody else feel that way? Uh, particularly in the culture, polarizing culture that we're in today, there are ways that I, I just wanna be right and I want people to know that I'm right more than I want to actually love people. And that's a, that's a conflict in my soul that arises often. So I wanna talk about that here this morning if I'm being honest, it gets kind of heavy. This message gets a bit heavy. It's um, some toe stepping happens. And so just, I've been praying that the spirit would move in power and in grace today. Um, it, it's gonna be thick, I think, towards the end. So I'm just, I'm asking that the Lord simplify it and, and make it palatable for each and every one of us. Let's go into John chapter seven, uh, verse one. John says, after this, so after this would have been after the 5,000, after the walking on water, after the eat my flesh, drink my blood, after people leave from following him. A few months later now, we're in a different season. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Galilee is not a, not a booming metropolis, so he can kind of hide there. He's a little more um, secure there. It says he would not go about in Judea where all the people were, especially the Jews, because the Jews, and when John says the Jews, he's speaking of uh, the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus and the gospel. Think Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, religious leaders, because they were seeking to kill him. Probably a wise move to not go where people are looking to kill you. Verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. There's three main Jewish festivals that the Lord had ordained Really in the book of Leviticus is where he lays them out, Leviticus 23. And this is the Feast of Tabernacles, some of you say, or the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths. Uh, they would celebrate for seven straight days. They tag an eighth day on the end of it um, when God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness and they lived in tents. And so what would happen is in this now, you know, thousands of years later, they would find themselves celebrating this every year for a week, they would live in a tent. Some would go out into the wilderness. Most would just build tents on the roof of their homes, not even tents, maybe more like lean-tos or um, something simple that they would live in for that week. The kids loved it. The dads loved it. The mama said, I'm gonna be inside where the air conditioning is. You can come get me when you wake up. Uh, but this was the Feast of Tents, but it was marked by a feast every single day, like a feast of epic proportions every single day, the party of all parties, Passover was the more religious of the festivals of the feasts, uh, but this one was the more celebratory of the feast. So there's no telling kind of what happens. Think, think, think Mardi Gras in Jerusalem, just uh, food upon food, party after party happening. And so all the Jews would then, many of them would come to Jerusalem every once in a while to celebrate this feast, this festival. So verse three, so Jesus' brothers, his literal brothers, of which we know for sure was one named James, his brothers said to him, why don't you leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you, no one does what you're doing secretly. Like this is a big deal. Why don't you go to be known openly? If you do those things, and here's the unbelief, if you do those things, show yourself to the world. Verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
Again, John has taken us from the multitudes to the crowds, to his disciples, to his 12, and now he's getting us into his family. The point John is making is even those closest to Jesus didn't believe that he was who he said that he was. I mean, those of you who have brothers, you know how hard it would be to believe that your brother was the Messiah. But this is, this is an issue now. So if, for further reading, if you want to, you can read this week in Mark chapter three. It gets worse than them just not believing in him. Uh, his brothers actually thought he was out of his mind, that he was clinically crazy in Mark chapter three. He's healing people. He's declaring that he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And even his brothers think he's crazy. Crowds have gathered around in Mark chapter three and they call for his mom, Mary, and his brothers to come get him because he's acting a fool. And they come out and they try to get Jesus to go back home because they've staged an intervention for him. So this, this is the life of Jesus. In that interaction in Mark chapter three, they say, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus says, well, who is my mother and brother? Those of you who believe in me, you are my new family. You are now my mother and my brothers. You can imagine what that feels like as a mother or a sibling to hear that, but this is how committed Jesus was to the will of his father, that he would leave and cleave. He would leave his uh, family behind, that he might cleave to the ministry that God had called him to. So here in Matthew, or in John chapter seven, I think what's happening is, because this would be after that incident in Mark chapter three, I think the brothers are being sarcastic, saying, why don't you go on up? If you really are that guy, if you really are a miracle worker, if you really are the savior, why don't you want people to know? You should go where the people are. You should go. Why are you staying here? You should, you should go. It would be fine. Why don't, why don't you just go and prove it to the rest of the world? And Jesus responds in verse six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So here's the statement Jesus makes to his brothers. I can't go because the world hates me. And the world, the systems of the world, they hate me because I'm telling them their works are evil. You are safe because you've never once confronted the evil in the world. So you go ahead. You're one of them. Good Jewish boys. And Jesus said, go ahead. You're part of the world anyway. You might as well just go on. I can't because I've made some statements that have put me at odds with the world. They're looking to kill me. My time has not yet come, but you're safe. Why don't you go ahead and go? See, his brothers were making judgments about Jesus, and then they were perpetuating that. They were pushing that on him and telling him to go ahead. It's fine. Go ahead. Prove it. Prove it to us. Prove who you are. But the issue for the brothers was that they had aligned themselves with the world so much they didn't have the right mindset to even see Jesus as the son of God, even though they grew up with him, they know about his teaching in the temple, they've seen the miracles he's performed and they still will not surrender uh, to that belief. The pastor in uh, New York City named Tim Keller and uh, Tim Keller makes this statement, which is, we're gonna come back to in a bit. He says, you'll either be attractive or repulsive as a Christian. If you are always repulsive and never attractive, it does not mean you are like Jesus it probably means you are obnoxious. Don't send me the emails. Email Tim Keller and let him know what you think about. The point he's making is, listen, if, if no one's ever attracted to you, it's probably just because you're a jerk. You're just obnoxious. But then he continues, and here's where he gets the rest of us. But if you are always attractive and never repulsive, 
it probably means you are a coward. Good gracious. So here's the deal. The brothers, the reason why Jesus' brothers were safe was because they were cowards and they wouldn't stand for anything. They wouldn't stand for the truth of God's word. They wouldn't stand for what, um, what they were experiencing with their brother. And so they acquiesced. They gave their hearts over to the world and therefore the world had nothing against them. And then there's Jesus who has drawn a line in the stand, has taken a stance. And because of that, the world was against him. But as Christians, there should be the both and. There should be people attracted to us because of the love we show them, because of the joy in our hearts and the peace in our hearts and the kindness we show to those who are different from us. There should be an attraction uh, to us. They, they, should be, they should know we are Christians by our love for one another. That should be attractive. But on the other hand, there are stances we have to make if we believe in the word of God that we make that are contrary to the way the world believes. And I would imagine that for many of us, we find ourselves at one or the other. We are either obnoxious or we are a coward. And in, meanwhile, we could be both attractive and repulsive. There's a way to live that the world deems is right, that is folly to the, world of, to the word of God. And we need to stand for that. But at the same time, there is a right way to judge the world. Let's continue. Verse eight, Jesus says to his brothers, you go on up to the feast I am not going up to this feast. Some of your translations say, I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time, it's not my time, has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. His brothers wanted him to go publicly. He's going privately. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Remember the Jews being the religious leaders who are opposed to Jesus. They were looking for him at the feasts and saying, well, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, no, he is leading people astray. He is attractive to some, repulsive to others. Verse 13, underline this one. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, the religious leaders, the Jews, as John called them, um, had made it clear what they thought of Jesus. So no one would speak about him while they were around. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, remember seven or eight day feast, so probably day four, Jesus um, went up into the temple, so much for being private, now he's in the temple, and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? Some of your translations say, how is it that this man um, hasn't even learned his letters. What they're saying is this man hasn't been brought up in the same schools that we've been brought up in. He didn't, he didn't study under a rabbi, wasn't in much of the temple programs. How is it that he knows this? They were impressed by his manner of speaking, <clears throat> his method of speaking, and um, by the content of his teaching. How is it that he knows so much? And he's never studied. Verse 16, Jesus answered them, it's because my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Jesus doubles down on, it's I'm God's, I'm the son of God. He, was, he sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, <clears throat> he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You wanna know truth, then you have to do God's will. If you were doing God's will, you would know that what I'm saying is true. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You can seek your own glory, and you're probably telling lies, or you can seek the glory of the one who sent you, and you're probably speaking the truth. Verse 19, Was not Mo- has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? Don't you know you're disobedient? You're a lawbreaker, but yet you seek to kill me. And so the crowd overheard this conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders, and the crowd answered, you have a demon. You are crazy. Who's seeking to kill you? No one's seeking to kill you. Because religious leaders are really good at hiding the depth of their hatred towards someone. So they didn't realize this was going on. They think Jesus is crazy. Who's seeking to kill you? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, listen, I did one work. Remember he healed the crippled man on the Sabbath day outside of the pool? He said, I did one work. I did one thing and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. There was a law put in place that any Jewish boy that was born must be, if he wanted to be holy and set apart, circumcised eight days after his birth. On the eighth day, he needed to be circumcised in a ceremony, probably usually at the temple. And Jesus is saying, if there's a boy who was born eight days before a Sabbath, the eighth day is the circumcision, you're fine with circumcising him on the Sabbath, even though you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So you will circumcise on the Sabbath, verse 23. But if on the Sabbath, so if, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you, but you're angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Here's the argument Jesus is making. On the Sabbath day, I healed a man's entire body and you call me a sinner. And yet on the Sabbath, you will maim a man's body and you will say that it is holy. Jesus is saying, do you understand the inconsistencies of what you're saying right now? Like you can do this here if it's this, but you can't do it if it's this. If it's healing and helpful, you can't do it. But if it's hurtful and maiming, you can do it. He's like, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. You're not thinking uh, clearly. Verse 24, he ends with, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Who is he speaking to? I think he's speaking to the crowd who had said, you're crazy. He's saying, listen, you're not, you're judging by what they're trying to promote themselves as. Don't judge by appearances. Use righteous judgment. I think he's also speaking to the Jews saying, hey, you're judging the law in a way that fits your preferences. It's it's all appearance. Use righteous judgment. If you're using righteous judgment, you would understand me healing a man is way better than what you do to men on the Sabbath, on the eighth day. He's comparing the two together. So Jesus wraps his statement up with the idea of right judgment. So I'm gonna spend a few minutes talking about what is righteous judgment. And then I wanna take us into the reason why I believe through this passage, why we don't judge rightly. I think there's an issue for us of why we don't um, judge Rightly. So based on just verse 24, it seems that right judgment um, doesn't judge appearances, it judges the heart, which takes us back to the Old Testament. God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. It seems like unrighteous judgment is one that judges based on appearance and surface level things, things that we can see, hear, feel, taste, and touch. This must be what um, unrighteous judgment looks like. 
Okay, so then the question, based on this passage and based on what we know, who judges unrighteously? Who, who actually walks in unrighteous judgment? We would say the world does. This is why what he's saying back in the beginning of um, the world hates me but would never hate you. What he's saying is the world judges unrighteously. The world judges based on appearance. But you want to know who else judges based on appearance? The religious. I'll say it this way. You know who else judges based on appearance? The church judges based on appearance. We would never say that. And we have Bible verses that, that we have cherry-picked that support our stances and our judgment. So it's different than the world who just has Kanye songs to quote their judgment. But we actually have the word of God uh, to support ours. But the truth is this. In the church, we are not immune from unrighteous judgment. Amen? We have it too. And it's not just your spouse and it's not just that person. It's you and it's me. It's in us. From the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What that represents was their own inclination, their own preferences to design and define good and evil. They weren't content with God saying, everything here is good, but this tree is evil. They wanted to decide for themselves. They wanted unrighteous judgment. And if you look about how they chose to eat from that tree, it was because it it looked good. It was desired to make one wise and it was pleasing to the eyes. It was appearances that made them fall into sin. We, Christian, we, Sharon Sharon Church, we, Christians, we, we find ourselves judging unrighteously. So it's not just the world. It's also the religious that also judge unrighteously. So let me make a few um, statements about judgment, righteous judgment. Uh, The Bible, uh, we often misquote it saying, well, we should not judge. No, no, no. Judge, but we have to judge with right judgment. So to judge with right judgment means that we need a plumb line. We need a level. You can't tell me a picture is crooked uh, just because you think it's crooked. I need to see the level that tells me that picture is crooked. So here's a few statements here. First is this, righteous judgment seeks restoration, while unrighteous judgment seeks to be right. Do you want to know if you're judging righteously or unrighteously? Righteous judgment seeks restoration. It seeks wholeness. It seeks uh, to be made whole. It seeks to fix and to love. Unrighteous judgment just seeks to be right. And I will say this till the day I die. You cannot righteously judge on social media. Every judgment on social media is unrighteous because you are seeking to be right rather than be loving or to seek restoration. If you're seeking restoration, you don't post on social media, you make a phone call. Righteous judgment seeks restoration. Unrighteous judgment seeks to be right. Okay, but under unrighteous judgment, we have the world and we have religion. So worldly judgment seeks to be right for the sake of comfort. Religious judgment seeks to be right for the sake of control. Compare the brothers to the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted control. They wanted to be right so that, so that people would give them control, so that they would be in, in control of situations, in control of people, in control of countries, in control of organizations. Religious judgment is all about control. Worldly judgment is all about comfort. Now, can Christians exert worldly judgment? Absolutely. Don't you make decisions based on comfort? I do. 
But religious judgment seeks to be right for the sake of control. If I'm right, if I'm righter than you are, then I have control over that situation or over that argument or over that family or over that company or over that country. I have control. While worldly judgment just seeks to be right for comfort's sake. Secondly, uh, righteous judgment relies on faith. Unrighteous judgment relies on fear. Righteous judgment tells me that I can stick to the word of God in faith, knowing that it is the best alternative. It is the best choice I can make. In my marriage, I can build my marriage based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, based on forgiveness and faith, and know that, that it's going to get us to where God wants us to be. But unrighteous judgment means that I leverage fear to get what I want. Remember back where it said the crowd did not talk about Jesus because of the fear of the Jews. Fear is the number one weapon of the unrighteous. If I'm being honest, I often wield fear in ways that I judge people, in ways that I judge situations, in the ways that I handle my children. I often do so out of fear because it gives me a distorted sense of control. Worldly judgment uses the fear of approval while religious judgment uses the fear of authority. The world says, hey, if you stick to the Bible, if you stick to what the word of God says about marriage and about sexuality and about finances, if you stick to that, you know no one's gonna approve of you, right? You know you're never gonna have friends. You know you're never gonna make money. Your company's gonna fall apart. You know, you know that, right? The fear is you won't be approved if you stick to the word of God. That's what the world says. And then religion, religious judgment uses authority. No, no, no. You should have the fear because I have the authority. I have the authority of the word of God, so you should live in fear. You know that if you don't abide by this, all hell's gonna break loose in your home. And then what if it doesn't? You're no longer the authority. Uh, Thirdly, righteous judgment is against the world for the good of the world and the glory of God. Righteous judgment is against the world for the good of the world and the glory of God where unrighteousness is against God for the good of self and the glory of self. Righteous judgment is against the world. To righteously, to rightly divide the word of truth, to stand on the truth of the word of God puts us as Christians in opposition to the world. Can you agree with that? We have stances about the way that God has designed the world to function that the world does not agree with. And so sometimes, sometimes we are, we are uh, repulsive to the world. The stances that Orthodox Christianity takes in marriage and family and sexuality and finances and in your schedule, stances that Orthodox Christianity has taken against us, has put us at odds with the world. Stances that Orthodox Christianity has taken against, um, against life or for life and against the murder of babies puts us at odds with the world, does it not? It does, but righteous judgment does so for the good of the world. In the very same way that if my kids wanted to eat Oreos and ice cream for dinner every night, I would stand in opposition to them and then I would eat it later. But I would stand in opposition for their good, not against them, but for their good. There are times as a parent where I am against my kids because my kids do not know what is best. They don't. 
And so sometimes I, in my God-given role, have to stand against the desires and wills of my kids. And I love them. And I stand against them because I want what's best for them. The problem for us as Christians is we often stand against the world, but it's not for the good of the world. We like the authority we have for standing against the world. But is it for the good of the world? Or is it just to be made right? We have to stand, righteous judgment stands against the world for the good of the world. You wanna know why we cling to what the Bible says about marriages and family and sexuality and finances and the way we run our schedules? Because it's the best for the world. It's good for them. Because walking in sin leads to death. But following the word of God leads to life. So that, that's why we stand the way we stand. That's why we have stances the way we do. Not to be right, not to condemn, but that the world might actually find Jesus and find life in his name for the good of the world and for the glory of God. But unrighteous judgment stands against God for the good of self and the glory of self. Worldly judgment is against God for the sake of pleasure. The world stands against the Bible, stands against God for the sake of their pleasure. Well, it, it doesn't feel good to follow this. This doesn't, this, doesn't, this doesn't meet the things that I desire. It doesn't help give me the things that I desire, so I'm not going to. It's all about pleasure. But, um, but religious judgment stands against God for the sake of pride. Did you know that every time as a Christian that we stand against the world for our own sake, we're going against the very desires of God? The cross is proof that he is against the world for the sake of the world. Finally, righteous judgment seeks to glorify God while unrighteous judgment seeks to glorify self. Righteous judgment seeks to exalt God while unrighteous judgment seeks to exalt ourselves. Worldly judgment seeks to glorify its accomplishments while religious judgment seeks to glorify its adversity. Uh, the world judges in a way that it amplifies successes. Well, this is, this is how you know I'm right because of all the things that have happened. And the church, we're really good at amplifying how miserable our lives are. We like to glory in our adversity. Do you know how hard it is to be a Christian in 2021? We like to glorify ourselves. I read before that... Um, that arrogance and conceit comes in two forms, boasting and self-pity. Boasting makes much of our accomplishments. Self-pity makes much of our adversity. But they're both conceit and arrogance, making much of ourselves. So now that we've um, tried to delineate between righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment, and hopefully the question then is, okay, then how do, we, how do we judge with right judgment? knowing that our filters are off, knowing that our plumb line is off, our levels aren't, uh, aren't set right, how, how is it then that we judge with right judgment? Well, we would need to know how God would judge. If we're gonna judge with righteous judgment, we need to know how God would judge. So we need to know the heart of God, which means that we need to know Jesus. Okay, well then how do we know Jesus? How do we know what the plumb line is? How do we know that I'm not distorting scripture to meet what I want it to meet? How, how do we know? Well, look at John 7, verse 17. Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, 
he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, if anyone wants to know what truth is, he first has to do the will of God. If anyone wants to know what truth is, he first has to desire the things that God desires. That's what we need. So I'm gonna try to unpack it this way. The foundation of right judgment or right judging is right knowing. To get to right judging, we have to first know rightly. But the foundation of right knowing is right willing. So I'm gonna take a few seconds to let that sink in. We want right judgment. Underneath right judgment is right knowing. But we can't start at right knowing. We have to start at right willing or the right desires. Because if we start at knowing, my distorted sinful desires will be the filter by which I interpret the right knowing. And it's why I think the church has gotten to the problems that we've gotten in. We haven't started with our desires. We started with our knowledge. And because of that, our worldly filters have made their way into how we read the Bible. Our experiences then become the filter by which we read the Bible instead of what God has for us. You cannot rightly judge until you rightly will or rightly desire. We can't. If we really want to know God, we want to know scripture, we want to know what truth is, we have to begin with our will or our desire. And this is the issue for each and every one of us. The reasons why we find ourselves in social media fights, the reason why we find ourselves drawing lines that aren't meant to be drawn, the reason why we find ourselves um, contributing to a polarizing society instead of working towards restoration is because our desire is off. We need to love making much of God more than we love people making much of us. As Christians, we need to love making much of God more than we love when people make much of us. Do you? Do you desire the glory of God more than the glory of yourself? Do you desire that God is made known more than your comfort? Do you desire that God is made known um, more than your control? Do you desire that God is made known more than your pride or your preferences? If God was going to use the very people and very thing that you hate to accomplish his will, would you still want his glory to be made known? Or can he only get glory if he does it the way you want him to do it? If God was going to use your cancer to make his name known, would you still want his will? If God was going to use um, struggles in your home life to make his name known, would you still want his will? Honestly, I don't know that I would. I would pray like Jesus, if there's any other way, can we do that? But then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The issue for us is that um, we like to glorify ourselves more than we like to glorify God. And we'd never say that, but it's why we're frustrated. It's why we're um, anxious. It's why we're on pins and needles. It's why at the drop of a hat, you will fight. You will have an argument. It's why there's this undercurrent of, of edge to us over the past year as a church, as Christians, 
It's because I'm not convinced that we actually want God's glory more than we want our comfort in our way. John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, there's a long quote I'm gonna read. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, I have to will God exaltation over self-exaltation. I have to will it. I have to desire it. And this is not what I will by nature. I want Jesus to do his miracles in a way that endorses my love for self-exaltation. I want him to endorse my Sabbath keeping and my law keeping in a way that confirms my self-exaltation. Our natural love for human glory makes it impossible to know and follow a person whose whole life is bent on emptying himself in order to glorify his Father and save sinners. To know Jesus for who he is, we must be changed, not just in our ideas, but in our wills. This is not a question of how to know truth. It's a question of want to. Do you want to? Do you want it? Do you want the glory of God? Do you want to know truth? Do I? Do we really want this? When push comes to shove and our will is contrary to the will of God, do we still want God's will? Do we still want his glory? Or do we want it for us? If God's glory is best manifested in the destruction of a country, would you still want it? You still want God to be glorified? If, God's, if God will be glorified most in a communist country, do you still want it? It's not a question of how do we glorify God. The question is, do you want to glorify God? The question is not how do we judge rightly. The question is, do you want to judge rightly? The question is not how do I know what truth is. The question is, do you, know, do you want to know the truth? Or like Jack Nicholson, we can't handle the truth. So do we actually want what God wants? Or do we want what we want? We're gonna use God to get it. Quite honestly, I often want what I want and I'll leverage God to get that thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving his first sermon. He preaches to those followers of his who um, had drifted away from prayer, who had not quite understood what prayer is. And prayer for us is the submission of our will underneath the will. That's what prayer is. Prayer is saying, I don't know what's best. Would you intervene? Prayer is true submission. And Jesus tells his followers in Matthew chapter six how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, sanctified, set apart be your name. Not my name. We begin prayer with our Father in heaven, who is in heaven, who is above all and in all and through all. Set apart, hallowed is your name. Then verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think what we often pray is, Father, your kingdom come and make my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is powerful submission to the will of the Father. That the kingdom of God ruled and reigned by the sovereign Jesus would descend and overtake not just the world's will, but our will, our religious will as well. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a submission to him. I depend on you daily. Give me daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the question for us today is, do you want God's will? Do you desire what God desires? Do you want him to be exalted and him to be glorified? Or if you're being honest, do you want to be exalted? That you would exchange the glory of God for your comfort. That you would exchange uh, the glory of God for your control. You would exchange the glory of God for your ease in life. Or do we really want what God wants? Because if we do, then we'll know Jesus. Only then. If you really want the glory of God, then we'll know Jesus. There's no other way. No other way. To know Jesus means to first submit our will to the will of the Father. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll just wrap up the time to process. Uh, For some of us maybe in the room, the question is whether or not we've actually ever submitted our will to the will of the Father? Or are you just playing the game or are you continually seeking your own desires? If you're being honest, you would say, I have been seeking my own desires. And at some point, by the grace of God, you'll reach the end of that and you'll be exhausted. And if by the grace of God, you have a chance in that moment to submit your will to the will of the Father, uh, then you'll find life in his name. But the propensity for us then is just to try something else. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, no, I've, I've actually never submitted my will to Jesus. I've never actually sought his glory. I've, I've, I've used the church to get what I want. I've used God to get what I want, but I don't know that I'm actually his son or his daughter. I've never actually given my life to him. Anybody this morning who would raise your hand and say, you know, I don't, I'm not actually following Jesus. I'm being a good person, but I'm not actually following Jesus. Maybe there are some of us in the room this morning who would say, no, I've, I've actually felt uh, the angst growing within me over the past year, over the past few weeks, over the past few months. And what's happening today is the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. That's because you've been seeking your own comfort, your own control, your own desires over the will of the Father. And for some of you, you've come head on, face to face with that. And you've got a decision to make today. Will you keep seeking your own desires at opposition to the Father who loves you and wants what's best for you? Or will you submit yourself to a good and gracious Heavenly Father who knows the whole picture that you can't see? So anyone today, you'd raise your hand and would say, would you pray for me? I just, I'm having a battle of wills and I, I need the Spirit to help me desire His will over my own. Would you raise your hand and just say, I need, I'm not, I'm not living under His desires. I'm living under mine. And I'm pretending, and I'm using the church to get what I want, but I'm not actually following him. Praise the Lord for your boldness. He sees you, and in grace, there's forgiveness and restoration and new life. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you that in your grace, God, that um, you meet us where we are. And you, um, you ask us to come as we are, and that it's okay not to be okay. But the truth of the gospel is it's not okay to stay there. So for those of us that you've brought to our hearts or our souls or our mind the understanding that we're not okay, 
God, in your power and grace, keep us from running to empty wells that we've run to over and over again and to run to you today. Remind us of your goodness to us today. Remind us that uh, we can trust you with our desires. We can. And we can trust your will. We can trust your glory over ours. Forgive us for where we've sought our own kingdom and haven't submitted to yours. As a church, may we be a church who continually, daily, hour by hour, submits our will to yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.